None of us know what the fuck we're doing. Trust me. Nobody knows what they're doing, no matter how much they're pretending. Um, And even my dad didn't know what he was doing, even though he always looked like he did. The sinking sound of despair. The smell of dread in the air. I'm head to toe in my own fear. I'm going to die and I need to cry. Ah. Kelly, Carlin, McCall, how are you, Kelly? I'm good, Michael. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, Pleasure. Very, very interested to talk to you as we have a a listenership of savages who would be <laughs> uh, far from in touch with their deep um, emotions. Okay. I view this as a huge opportunity of education for each and every one of those uh, pigs. You are a practitioner of Buddhism. I am, yeah, a Zen. When you kind of read about Buddhism and what it means, it's hard to imagine why everyone isn't taking part in it, really. Do you know what I mean? It just kind of seems like the the answer to existence is it nearly metaphorical the whole thing that living the good life will reward you um in afterlifes is it just kind of a message that says there is no greater um circumstance than living a full life now and the other thing actually shouldn't concern you or is that a legitimate belief you know it's interesting with buddhism because there are local cultural versions of it um certainly tibetan buddhism that does talk about the afterlife as far as bardos and moving through them and stuff like that. And, um, and I'm not, I'm not into that kind of so much, those kind of teachings, which I would say are more, are more akin to um, other indigenous type of things that have some sort of relationship or try to have some sort of relationship with what happens to us after, after we die but I think the Southeast Asian and the Japanese and, you know, more of the Zen Buddhist take on things is absolutely about, you know, we are here and we are dealing with life and we are dealing with each other. And, and how do we, you know, how do we deconstruct um, what we project out into the world? You know, how, how do we see our own thoughts and our own construction of our thoughts? And, you know, as I learned about the Dharma and the teachings, um, you know, that are 2,500 years old, it's really cool because, you know, the science is backing up all this stuff now, which is pretty amazing. And this whole idea of like constructing our realities, you know, that's a very postmodern thought in the Western tradition of thinking you know, that's something that's only been around for, you know, a hundred years or even less that, you know, we're, we all kind of have a subjective reality. So um, I, th- I think it's fascinating as far as the, the metaphor thing. I mean, I, I, you know, what I always said and say to people is, you know, well, we don't know what happens after we die. We'll find out then. And either it's going to be a party or um, it's not going to be anything. Um, and either way, it sounds like we'll be okay. And either way, it shouldn't interfere with the emotions that you carry around whilst you're living. 
or how you treat people in the present moment, right? The core idea of Buddhism as well is that you can't actually effectively treat people with any sort of love or affection that can help them unless you are treating yourself with the exact same approach. And that all kind of hatred is just transferred originally being in thyself. Absolutely. You know, kindness, loving kindness to self is, you know, kind of the the foundation of it all. And if, um, you know, because how we treat ourselves is how we treat the world. Of course, a lot of us are unconsciously beating ourselves up and unconsciously don't understand that we're projecting that out into the world. Um, and and self-love is is a profound act of courage, actually, I believe. It's it's not a a, a softening or a weakening of of the self. It's it's the foundation for then feeling secure and um kind of a core strength. When you commit to the kind of the Zen Buddhism thing. Is it like a contract you sign within your own head or does it just suck your spirit in? Is there ever times where you find yourself still giving time to the opinions of others and oh. kind of letting yourself down internally? Or is it a form of hypnosis? Because in a way, we're all hypnotized by something. Capitalism does that. Our childhoods do that. Is it just a new form of healthier hypnosis or is it something that you have to work on keeping within yourself when you are in a Zen mode of existence? The whole point is that in every moment, you're just trying to be as conscious as you possibly can. And um, of course there's deep, deep times of unconsciousness and being spun around by the culture and your own personal psychological complexes. It's not like a light switch. It's a journey like anything else. And the journey starts with being kind to yourself about every moment that you have. Um, You know, it's, 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 there's no, it's not a pill you take and then you're fine. And most people sit on a cushion and get very few moments of inner peace and calm and quiet. Um, you know, that can take decades for people to find that space. Uh, but I think what it teaches you to do is to witness, to witness your thoughts, to witness the sensations of your bodies to witness your emotions. And when we witness these things with kindness, uh, then we see that they are impermanent and that everything is impermanent and that we don't have to buy into it all so much. So the micro moment of an emotion can be impermanent. And then also looking at the state of the world and knowing that this too is impermanent. And that doesn't give you license then to do whatever the hell you want to do. What it what they ask of you is then to know that, you know, number one, it's about making sure that you're not causing any suffering in the world. And of course, we're always causing suffering if we live in a capitalistic society or anything. If you're eating anything, you're causing some suffering. So it's degrees of that. Um, So it's not some sort of antidote for things, but it is another tool I have found, and especially mindfulness, which is what I study, um, the t- kind of the Thich Nhat Hanh path of mindfulness, um, that it's a tool in order to be able to constantly witness our own hypnosis, our own neurosis, and um, and the societal, like you said, hypnosis that comes over us. Um, and it's 
it's no fun to wake up. It's no fun to look at your own crap that's inside of you. It's no fun to see how broken the system is. That's hard to sit with. And then too, you have to bring loving kindness to the suffering and the difficulty of being able to kind of see with your eyes wide open. The daughter of George Carlin, many listeners will be aware of his great iconic work. What was it like being the daughter of a father who was on a stage and kind of humorously critiquing the lives of what would have been a lot of your peers' parents? Was it an isolated childhood to have your dad to be a social commentator that was kind of pushing the boundaries so far? I mean, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. There were plenty of people who were saying the same things he was saying, just in different ways. I think it's always more complicated than people believe it is. I mean, we lived a very privileged life. Um, My dad lived the American dream, uh, while at the same time he was able to critique it. Uh, He knew that. He knew he was lucky. He knew that he had... He worked hard for it, but he also knew that he was lucky and he, he knew he was had privilege, uh, but he tried to use his respect of other people and honoring of other humans in his life, um, you know, to be a good human being. Was it isolating? I think the most isolating part of my childhood was the, my parents' addiction, uh, because you can't really talk about that kind of stuff outside of the home. And so I felt very lonely and alone going to school and being around my peers and not knowing if anyone else's family was going through stuff like that, which I'm sure they were. Uh, But as far as him being a comedian, no, that was actually something that would attract people to me and people would want to be around me. Um, Maybe the isolating part of that might be, you never really knew who were, who was your friend because of who you are or because of who your parent is. Yeah. Uh, But um as far as him being a social commentator, I tended to grow up around people who were very progressive and would agree with him 99% of the time. When you talk about like George Carlin and, and cocaine addiction, it's strange to think that when you see him perform, it seems like a man that is so on top of his emotions and a shadow. And that's why he's able to parody it in, in a way that other people can't. Where do you think the addiction stemmed from? I think some people are just wired for addiction. His father was a raging alcoholic and died early. He didn't know his father, his mother and his mother's side of the family certainly had it too. I mean, you know, you you don't want to forward the trope, but you know, he wasn't an Irish, he was Irish, hundred percent Irish. Um, And then cocaine in in and of itself for someone like my dad, who was slightly OCD already and very, very driven. um, I think it was like the perfect drug for him. And it's a very, very addicting drug. It's a very dangerous drug. It's not like marijuana. You know, it's processed like alcohol and um, anything that is processed like that is is really going to do a number on your body and on your mind. It gave him a lot of energy. It gave him a lot of focus and it gives you a lot of clarity the first few times you do it. The problem is that the person who does it once wants to do it, uh, keep doing it over and over again. Uh, and then it leads to no sleeping, uh, which then really leads to a lot of problems. And then my add on top of that, my mother's own very severe alcoholism. And it's it's a real recipe for, you know, um, not too much harmony in 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 inside the house. So um, but, you know, it was it was a drug that uh, it was of its time. You know, it was the early 70s, mid 70s. And uh, and he was one of those people who really liked it. Do you think that there's a choice at all? 
to addiction though because when we talk about things like buddhism and kind of the the control um that one can take over their own mind and perception do you think it is a genuine chemical wiring within the brain a genetic thing or deep down there is a, a choice that you can still make. I think there is absolutely a genetic propensity for it, like there is for other things. Chemicals in your body and how they react to your body and your brain would be a biological, physical reaction. Uh, but then recovery is it all about choice, making choices all day long about who you surround yourself with, what actions you take, and what thoughts you have. And so that's when awareness comes in and things like meditation. Uh, are really important, which is something that, you know, a lot of 12-step programs talk about, meditation, they talk about prayer also, and higher power, stuff like that. But but even the higher power thing is important, because it's not about a God, necessarily. It's just about knowing that there is something bigger than the ego part of you that chooses the drug or chooses the circumstances. And that's the Buddhist part, right? The Buddhist part is always about seeing that there is an, another perspective that is bigger than your ego. And your unconscious is, is one of those things that is bigger than your ego. And your unconscious can either be run by your body, like addiction, or you can also, you know, start to examine some unconscious beliefs, choices, decisions, paradigms that you have that may lead you to making bad choices. Um, I think it's always both. Do you think George Carlin was, in a way, a a Buddhist with a microphone in his hand? I think he was someone, yes, who, in his own way, um, although he wouldn't put it this way, but just observing him and being a member of the audience, I felt he loved to wake up people to a larger reality. Um, not a spiritual one, but... Uh, and, but in some ways, a spiritual one. I mean, this whole bit about the the big electron, I think, is a very Buddhist take on, you know, uh, life. Yeah, and also it, it kind of it, it depends on how we define spirituality. George Carlin had the ability to take you out of our planned human and uh, man-made form. And when you hear him speak, you do get sucked into another world in which you realize that we're much less important than we do believe to be. Yes. And, the, and the, and the ego does evaporate. So in a way, the whole yeah. thing was a spiritual kind of psychedelic experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, he talked openly about how LSD in the late sixties really did open his mind in that way. And so he did have some pretty powerful transcendent experiences through that drug, which did let him see a much wider perspective of things and I think that's always the job of the comedian, though, is to is to have the wider perspective. That's their job is to be the observer of things that we're that we're not quite paying attention to as closely as everyone else. So, so what do you make of the comedic trend like Donald Trump? The fact that it's kind of so obvious. Do you think that that's weak comedy? It, it's not necessarily awakening you and it's a late night show and they do five minutes on something that everybody's talking about in every bar and they're not taking the viewer of the comedy to a new level. I don't know. I mean, I think there's some people uh, who do it well and others who don't. I mean, that's the talent, right? That's the mastery of the material. Um, I think if you can get people to, you know, I think there's, I think comedy has two, I would say kind of two things that are important about it. One of which is to just, it's number one job is to make people laugh. And that was always my dad's job. And he always said that I'm not here to change people's thinking. I'm here to make them laugh. I'm an entertainer first and foremost. 
Um, and he would say, I'm not here to change people's thinking. I'm just here to make sure that people know that I've been thinking all day. So it was very much of a show off thing for him. Did he genuinely give as little a fuck as a viewer would think? When he's on stage, he genuinely looks unbelievably relaxed. And the closest thing to in a comedic performance I've seen express his exact thoughts. Uh, was that genuine or was that just a mastered performance? Both. He believed everything he said and stood behind it. And he was an entertainer that learned and knew how to use the uh, techniques of oration in order to make his point. He was a, uh, a monologist. He was an orator uh, that made you laugh. Uh, he was a man who understood the power of language to make an argument. He was an essayist, uh, but making people laugh was his job. So he would tell you and has said this out loud. It was both. He believed everything he said. And of course, he would heighten things to an absurd level because the absurdity also makes people be able to see things clearer if you take something to an absurd degree. And it also makes you realize that everything's absurd and that even normal life is as absurd as anything that exaggeration will provide. Uh, whether, and that's kind of the idea. It's, it's, it's adding a reverence and in a way, taking away troubles. And at the time, people tried to use seriousness to make people uh, feel fear and therefore to control them. And what George Carlin did is kind of make people realize that you, you were capable of greater emotional safety by yeah, not playing the game. Absolutely. And, you know, um, there's there's a really good point, though, you know, that I don't know if you know who Penn Gillette is of Penn and Teller. Um, but he's a, a great thinker and really admired my father and they were friends and stuff. And I heard him recently talking about this, that, you know, it is kind of the entertainer and the, especially the comedian's job to be the bomb thrower, to, to show the world how absurd everything is. And then Penn talk, was talking about Donald Trump um, because he had been on, on his show on The Apprentice and just saw him really close up and knew what a what a not not a good human being he is on every level and um he said you know it's one thing to be the bomb thrower as long as the system is in some ways uh working but you don't ever want to put the bomb thrower in charge of the system because of the amount of chaos that then happens and you know a part of my dad obviously knew his role was to be a bomb thrower. And as long as the system was working, my dad was making money and had food on the table and could buy a nice car whenever he wanted to. Um, but my dad also rooted for the chaos, you know, because then he could make, you know, because he, he wanted to, he wanted to watch the show of entertainment, but I don't think necessarily as a human being, he wanted to live through the chaos. Um, so I think there's, you know, I think it's important to understand that the comedian's job is to poke at the bear, um, but, um, you know, to, there's one thing to see it as all absurd. And I think ultimately kind of a Zen Buddhist um, perspective is that it is all absurd. I mean, you know, the laughing Buddha, you know, I mean, the, 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 there, is that, there is that position, um, but at the same time, if that makes you then cynical and cruel to your fellow man, then we have an then we have problems. And and I kind of see the world that way right now. That I see Donald Trump wants to be a comedian and he goes up there and 
he's he really wants to be a comedian. I mean, you watch him do his speeches and he's trying to do a comedy act. Mm. And the, the terrifying thing about it is that by doing that in the position of power that he had, he was undoing norms that really do hold the glue of us together, which is our humanity. And, you know, he just has no respect. It, it, it was a comedy act, though. How much he undermined the seriousness of politics played in his favor, although he was bringing wrong ideals to the forefront. A lot 100%. of people who were disillusioned with the seriousness of the way the kind of suited and uh, yes. kinda very cold monologues you'd get off politicians is what got Trump into power uh, as, much as, as much as 100%. people who actually stored hatred. I want to be fucking Zen and stop hating myself every day if that's at all possible. You said Trump's not a good human being. Do we believe in people not being good human beings? Is that a label that's even possible? Can we actually just say someone isn't a good human being or is it just reaction to circumstances and emotional mismanagement due to lack of enlightenment? Yeah. I mean, from an enlightened point of view, of course, I have compassion for all human beings, including him. I mean, this guy is a broken human being. And I and I do agree, Michael, that it is based on, I mean, I've watched some documentaries and his father was, you know, one of the pe- biggest pieces of shit on earth who was broken probably by his own life. And it's, you a, know, it's but it isn't everyone's primary responsibility is to try and find some some form of inner happiness and peace. And it's the world's fault in a series of circumstances that his was from kind of excessive wealth and standing on the little guy to get to the top that's what made him feel good and it's some point people have to take responsibility for themselves and because of his personality disorder he has no capability of doing that which makes him very dangerous the world at the end of the day the, the rat race that it has presented us with um donald trump from the age of six thought he wouldn't be ashamed of who he is no, he wouldn't. The world he set that up. The guy's brain experiences dopamine. Yeah, he's we happy. need to. And and when he donates to a charity, he genuinely believes that he's he's helping people. And he, no, he... I I get that, but we still then have to have our own boundaries in a society and say this is right and this is wrong. But Otherwise... I think when, pe- when people do have enlightenment, I think the kind of uh, hatred of Trump, I think it empowers them, and I think it empowers the people that uh, follow him because they then view him as a rebel. When in I reality, agree. If 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 it's his kind totally of ideology fair. was taking no. away Trump the revolutionary is how you disarm him. I I hundred percent agree, and I think within all of us we have an enlightened version of ourselves, and then we have a version that can you know. Uh, and, that's, and that's why I talk about late night when you see these comedians doing bits. The, the a lot of the audience who vote for Trump are just going, these guys are trying to fill their pockets by picking on an easy target, and I never saw. George Carlin uh, pick on the easy target. And even if something did become easy, he nearly changed the material to move somewhere else because he viewed it as his responsibility to keep the intellect of his audience going as opposed oh, to remain Michael, static. Michael, if, if my dad was alive during Donald Trump, he would have taken him down uh, by his knees. Do, with do, a you also, do you also think, and obviously you'd know much more than me, but this is, this is just a fan's perspective, that he also would have heavily targeted the insane, over-the-top uh, left-wing culture that exists in the media and that social media has provided for people who are engaging in, ad- in identity he, politics. And that would have he, been his main target is the extreme woke left that in a way no, handed Trump it, no, the, I'm gonna the White House. That was, so his main target always was political correctness and the owners of this country. That would be the left and their political correctness and people like Donald Trump. So 
And because Donald Trump presents himself as a rebel and has hypnotized people in thinking that he's on their side, he is not. He is an elite. He's a man who's used the system to line his own pockets. My father yeah. loathed Donald Trump and would have fucking taken him down. Of course. But could you see George Carlin pointing the finger at people and saying, look what you caused? We have created a world in which this idiot who was on The Apprentice could actually get into the White House. I told you so. And, and not necessarily that. just kind of not leave Trump alone, but just say that idiot isn't even worthy of analysis. This was so obvious. We live in a crooked society in which the Kardashians are important. Yes. he And he's he already said that, that, you know, Americans elect, you know, where do you think these politicians come from? He said from American schools, from American families, from American businesses. You know, we, you know, he's he's already pointed the finger at America for this corruption and this in this nightmare. Of course he would. Of course, absolutely. He would. He would have just taken it to the you know, but he but he would have done it in such a way that wouldn't have been um, the normal argument that people have against political correctness. And it wouldn't have been the normal argument that people have against Trump. It would have been his particular argument that would have blown all of our minds away because that's what he did. He never, ever, you know, let himself fall into the tropes that other people did with these people. How do you think he would have leaned on the, the trans issue? Do you think that he would have said that it's misogyny and that it's kind of in the hands of the white man who's in charge of popularizing woke culture to still line his own pocket? Michael, if I knew that, I'd be speaking that position that he was he is doing. All you know I know all I, I mean, there's no way I can predict what my father felt about that. My father believed that people have the right to um, be who they want to be in the world. And he completely supported that. And any religious group or conservative group that tried to control that um, are, you know, wrong. And then he would also talk about, um, you know, the uh, the stridency of uh, languaging around this thing is also not right. Um, but I don't know how he would have particularly the phrases he would have said because, well, that's why he was here. He had the phrases. Um, but we yeah. can all guess that, of course, he would have, you know, his normal targets were people who were trying to control thought and speech. People who were in power, yeah. So not even, it was just religion at his time or conservatives at his time, but it'd be very interesting to know what George Carlin 2023 would make of the fact that the cancel culture that exists and all, it'll be very interesting to know where he leans on that. And uh, you he also fear, you also fear that ago. he had a whole bit on political correctness 40 years ago. I mean, in the early nineties, he talked about it. He, you know, his take on it, which is it's wrong. You can't control language and thought. You know, I mean, he talked about this kind of stuff. And even, even when it's extreme right, like although being anti-Trump is a completely understandable position, as one should be, uh, if they have a logical thought in their brain. But do you think that someone who's expressing uh, right wing views should be canceled on Twitter when someone who's expressing left wing views shouldn't be? Like, I don't know what my dad would think, but this is what I think. The culture has moved forward. The culture is more progressive than it was 50 years ago, than it was 25 years ago. I mean, gay marriage in our country is legal. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people in the conservative movement got left behind by the arts and entertainment and mainstream media. Uh, you know, the people who work in those uh, jobs and those careers and those systems are, for the most part, 
you know, m- more more left leaning than right leaning. They're they're more human rights oriented. But originally, that was because they were free thinkers. But now it seems to me that being left wing is just a way to uh, fit in in the creative society because you're threatened if you're not. Back in the day, it seemed like being counterculture was the only way you could express yourself. But now it seems like a... I think that's a natural pendulum shift of any society that the other side is now coming back and trying to, you know, trying to wrest some of the balance of this. And has begun to mirror the behaviors of the previous opponent. Yes, always. And I think, you know, over a 200 year period, we'll know more. But I think this is a natural swing in our society. And I also think that normally... Anybody who's trying to change a culture is going to do it with more of a sledgehammer approach. You know, it's like when the Me Too movement came out, you know, and everyone was like, you have to believe every woman and every accusation. And it's like, well, okay, you know, the legal world, you know, has has an approach to that and people have an approach to that. But anyone I talk to on the left, and I have so many progressive friends you know, everyone had a much more ability to have a shades of gray type of conversation about the Me Too movement. No one was stridently saying, you know, you know, everyone who's been accused is definitely guilty. Um, it's like, you know, life is complicated. Um, it's the you youth, know, you see. It, it, it's what it does to the youth. And it's the 16, 17 and 18 year olds who are seeking an identity who then don't have the life experience or intellect to adopt that position. Who well, do begin yeah. pointing fingers and then it becomes popular and it doesn't sound nice to say. Well, it becomes I, popular to be a victim of sexual abuse. Well, I think, you know, you're either going to be victim, perpetrator, or rescuer. That's the ego stance. Those are the three roles the ego get to play in, in any society yeah. or family. And so, you know, yeah, victim's easy to play. And everyone, everyone's victim. You know, everyone gets to play the victim role at some point and and, and the rescuer point. You know, there's the rescuer point too. Um, but, you know, I think also, you know, one thing we, we haven't talked about that I think is exact, exacerbated all of this, which is social media. You know, we are, we are in the end, we are like, animals that love shiny things and our brains cannot handle the responsibility of what we have done through social media. And I think that without social media, this would be a very different world right now. Yeah, Uh, We're out of of sync with our natural existence completely and having the ability to express thought or receive information on such a wide scale with a, with a mobile tablet uh, has whipped our existence away from us. And it's either existence is ending or serious legislation comes in in which uh, we have to fade social media out of society. And it was a fad and it was a phase, but so powerful it is. And yeah. uh, so backed by money, it will probably yeah. win and humans will become second to, in a way, robotic, computerized yeah. thought. And it's, without sounding like a conspiracy freak, um, the robot fucking war comes in. Well, we're seeing it, right? I mean, the whole AI and the whole what a, a chat thing or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we are, p- people think, you know, that because we've got this civilization and we can fly airplanes and put someone on the moon and and treat cancer and heart disease and things like that, that, you know, oh, we're civilized. But, you know, just, and this is kind of, I think a lot of what my dad's point always was, it's just, but, but right under the surface, is the greed, is the selfishness, is the mind, mind, mind thing. And we have no control over that. And this is where Buddhism comes in because Buddhism 
is about slowing down your thinking and slowing down your yeah, actions. It's never been it's actually never been a more important time to start considering things like Buddhism because you do have to check out of this society. And back when Buddhism and all that stuff was beginning, uh it's still there was a there was a natural element to the world. You know what I mean? We we had sex with each other, we hunted for food, but we were always present more naturally. But now no one's present because social media is a recollection of the past and a plan for the future. So present thought's actually impossible if you're engaging in it. So Maybe Buddhism and internal health is the only escape any human being who wants to live any form of meaningful life has at this point. And has the community seen an upsurge now due to, do you think, the threat of social media as opposed to just the the kind of fad of people wanting to claim they're a Buddhist on Instagram and have their yoga mat in the boot of their car? I mean, I think there's enough talk in the culture that people understand that self-awareness is super important and that self-awareness of these unconscious thoughts and desires and urges and constructs are really essential. But in order to have that self-awareness, you have to teach people things like critical thinking. And, you know, I mean, critical thinking isn't taught much in these, in at least in America and certain regions, um, you know, so, and of course with media, you know, we're all addicted to these screens and, you know, TV, you know, started what, 60 years ago or whatever it was, 65, 70 years ago. Um, you know, so critical thinking has gone down a lot in the last half of the 20th century. It's also very funny the way we, we nearly mock kind of our grandparents for believing in God. And that was their way of coping with the fact that you die. But right now, the conversation of death is less brought up than it ever was. We just don't even talk about it because we're so locked into pointless information that we're more afraid than they were. They made up a man in the sky, but we've made up a new form of existence in which we read statements that don't really exist. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of that just shows the lack of critical thought that's really going on in the world right now. At least when you're going to church and you're praying to someone who doesn't exist in the sky in the name of Catholicism 100 years ago, you're still acknowledging the fact that we are dying, what are we going to do about it? But now the death conversation is danced around. Yeah, and You see all these people rise to the top of popular culture on YouTube and in all form of different shows and conversational outlets, but no one's talking about death. What was, uh, what was George Carlin like towards the tail end? Uh, how did he face it? How did he stare death in the eye? Like, what, what were the last conversations you had with him? We never talked about it. That's a topic that we never talked about in my family. I, I, you know, I wrote a memoir and the kind of the theme of the memoir was just like other families, there were certain things that we just pretended weren't happening. And around my mother's death 25 years ago, we didn't really talk about it. Even afterwards, uh, was was that something that you and your father would have kind of connected over in, in his remaining years? Or was it something that he pushed to the side no. emotionally? No, he pushed all that stuff aside. He he admitted that he was a person that did not feel his emotions deeply. Um, he was had a big heart. But is that true though? Because it's such emotional work that he was putting out. It was yeah, it was... but but he didn't. You know, whatever you suppress, he. I mean, he could be emotional. There's not that he couldn't be emotional, but you know, vulnerable. Vulnerable is different than emotional. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. Our vulnerability is the thing that we cut off from. And no, there were things that we didn't talk about. We we were like some families where, you know, the elephants in the room. And so his he had heart failure the last two or three years he was alive. Uh, we never once talked about it. I knew it was happening. I ended up looking, doing some research on the internet, internet understanding that if you, if you didn't get a heart transplant, he'd probably only had at the most five years. 
And then the last year he was really struggling with keeping it stable. And, um, you know, his doctor told him to come into the hospital. He was having some symptoms and doctor said, you know, you need to come in. We need to do some tests on Friday. And my dad said, oh, I've got a bunch of things on my to-do list. Because my dad was very addicted to his to-do list. And um, could I come in on Sunday or Monday instead? And the doctor said, well, I don't recommend it, but, you know, it's it's your call. And uh, my dad ended up having a severe uh, issue on Sunday morning and and died in the emergency room. How strange was it to see someone that was so kind of associated with just being so alive and so full of energy uh, who did, as you say, push away vulnerability to be in a position of vulnerability? Well, you know, it was the dance we did our whole life. So I didn't really have any, I mean, I, I had wished that we were, you know, able to have these kind of profounder, deeper, raw, vulnerable conversations. I would have loved that. But, you know, we kind of all have the relationship we have with our parents and we all dance around these things. It's it's hard to do that. We, he and I had, you know, would, would approach some of those things sometimes. Um, but, you know, his focus was very much on the world and being a cultural observer. And, um, you know, but I know his relationship with Sally, which was his girlfriend when he died, you know, they'd been together for 10 years. I know they were, you know, they had a lot of these deep conversations and stuff, but uh, yeah, you know, it's, I think that's part of the reason I wanted to to do my solo show and write my book because I wanted people to know that, you know, yeah, he was this amazing man and an amazing thinker and amazing performer and a kind, kind hearted soul and a genuine, genuinely down to earth human being. Uh, but he was also human. He had his, he had his emotional baggage, just like the rest of us. And um, he wasn't perfect. And he, you know, and he struggled with that. You know, I think he struggled a lot with a lot of regret about the addiction part of his years and the effect that had on me as a kid. Um, and I, you know, and he tried hard, he was in therapy and he ended up going into rehab to deal with some Vicodin addiction and stuff about four years before he died. So, you know, I mean, he wasn't like un unaware or not able to like look within himself. Um, but, you know, he was pretty wired pretty hard, you know, and he raised himself with his brother. He was, he was a, he was a kid, he was a latchkey kid and he raised himself on the hard streets of New York city, you know, um, so he was a New Yorker too, you know, and, uh, you know, we all have our stuff. How did you manage the thing that so many people who are the the children of someone who was so iconic, uh, how did you manage to kind of find your own creative voice without constantly uh, either falling into the habit of imitation or else kind of excessive avoidance of the expression game? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's another part of my memoir. You know, my memoir was really about me as an adult, really struggling to find my place in the world and afraid to claim my voice. And it really wasn't until my dad died that I felt that I had a real freedom to be able to do that as a creative um, because it was such a huge shadow. And I'm actually starting to write a little bit about that time in my life, about what it was like to suddenly be out of the shadow and to choose to step into the spotlight and the conscious choice I made around that. Um, because I knew that if I didn't walk through the fire of that, I'd never be through it and I'd never get to the other side of it. Um, and at the same time, I knew I really wanted to take care of my dad's legacy. I'm an only child and it was important to me to protect his legacy, even though he didn't want me to do that, I don't think. Um, but I think he's really an important thinker and an important person of the 20th, 20th century. And, um, 
you know, I want to make sure that people get it right as long as I'm alive when they tell his story or, um, you know, and I, I try, I try to do that. I gave up on social media. It's, it's ridiculous. But, um, so I, I felt that was important too. Um, but it also, there was a freedom, you know, I don't know if you've lost a parent or not, but it's an interesting thing when a parent leaves the planet, there is, um, a bit of freedom that comes with that. And, um, and so I got to explore more of my creative self when he was gone. How do you view then the next 15 or 20 years of your own life? Cause you're talking about that freedom and so far it has been about things like stepping out of that shadow, finding your own voice, dealing with the things like childhood trauma that everyone has to do. Are you excited now about the the sixties and the seventies and truly yeah. uh, going yeah. into a new area of expression? I actually am. And, and I do feel excited about it. You know, the documentary, um, I think you guys have it there. I think it's on sky, uh, George Carlin's American dream. Yeah. The Judd Apatow uh, thing. Yeah. The, yeah. The Judd Apatow doc. Um, when that was when that came out last year, I really felt like it was the end of the, of a long, a long arc for me because I had after my mom died in ninety seven and ninety nine, I started to do a solo show and wanted to tell my own story and talk a little bit about the family. And so it was a long arc of a thing. And it's you know the story's done now and it's out there. And so I'm excited about the next twenty years um, as far as my own creative life and feeling permission. But, you know, it's, it'll always be a struggle for me. There's always some voice on my shoulder that's worried about, you know, his fans or worried about an audience or whatever. But I'm getting more and more in contact with that part of me that just has a point of view and has my it's, own life experience it's, it's, to talk about. The lineage of it is beautiful as well, because uh, in the last words book that your, your old man wrote, he talks about his own mother, Mary, appearing on his shoulder when he's in the writing room, when the OCD kicks in. And just yeah. the kind of the pass down of ideology of who we yep. are, seed and egg, our bloods are blood, and the immortality is nearly achieved that way. Uh, the the passing down of DNA is enough spirituality and magic that any human needs, really, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, Michael. Um, yes, it it is like that, you know. And I know that he, I know he saw me as an artist and knew that I was a good writer and that I had the chops of performance and. And then I have a good head on my shoulders. You know, I, I, I'm glad I got the gift of the gab and I got the ability to, to look at the world through certain eyes. And, and I hope to just use that ability more and more to kind of tell people how I see it. And also to try to bring some, you know, that extra dose of the humanity and the loving kindness to it all. And, you know, my, my whole aim with all of my work is always to just reveal to people that we're all human we're all struggling with something and that um, the more we can share our humanity with each other, I think a better chance we all have as a species and as a planet. Well, Kelly, I wish we had more time, but before we part ways, just kind of speaking to an audience that would be in between that 30 to 40 age bracket, the key thing to avoiding that panic you have within yourself and that questioning and that voice in your head that has you beating yourself up. Yeah. What is the what is the key to finding a feeling of warmth around your body? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, ev like you just said, during those decades, everyone is having those thoughts. And that's almost kind of your job in your 30s and 40s is to kind of be questioning, am I living into my potential? Because that is kind of the fuel that fuels us forward. And, and how would we define potential, just real quick? I'm talking about that thing that you feel that 
you know that at the end of your life you want to look back on your life and said yeah i did it i did i did what i was here to do and so yeah i mean societal standards are going to get in the way of that and there's no behind there's no such thing as a late bloomer there just is the place you're in and the journey you're in and there's no right way to do the any of this and so i think it's important to really remember and and to invite that voice in which is like a kind like a kind mentor who really really gets you and says you're okay you're going to be okay and you know and just as long as you keep being good to yourself and being kind to yourself and good and kind to the rest of the world you know that's what really really matters and all of the prestige and all of the achievement it's all a big experiment it's just we're all throwing spaghetti on the wall people none of us know what the fuck we're doing trust me nobody knows what they're doing no matter how much they're pretending um and even my dad didn't know what he was doing even though he always looked like he did yeah. um so we're all just trying to figure it out you know and i love this quote of ram dass's which is we're all just walking each other home and if we can remember that that just that's all we're here doing as humans is we're just trying to walk each other home um i think it takes a lot of the pressure off well it's been beautiful it's a different theme for the michael anthony show but it's been calming it's been relaxing and i appreciate your time and hopefully uh we chat again sometime michael i would love that i love this conversation and thank you so much for okay. having me well, huge respect to you, Kelly, and obviously uh, massive respect uh, to your father and everything he provided for all of us as well. Thank you. It's all the best. It's been how many years, my boy? You still don't know my chairs of joy. No need to go, just take it slow. And have you heard the Michael Anthony Oh, 